Hey, it's Andy from Talking to Teens. It would mean the world to us if you could leave us a five-star review. Reviews on Apple and Spotify help other parents find the show, and that helps us keep the lights on. Thanks for being a listener, and here's the show. You're listening to Talking to Teens, where we speak with leading experts from a variety of disciplines about the art and science of parenting teenagers. I'm your host, Andy Earle. We're here today with Jari Bolander talking about how to deal with teenagers who are ungrateful. Do you have a teenager who's unappreciative? You work so hard all day long <laughs> at work. You manage their entire life. You do everything for them and they don't really seem to appreciate any of it. In addition to taking care of everything in your own life, you also keep track of everything that is going on for your teenager. But are they grateful? Do they tell you how much they appreciate you all the time? Maybe not. Jari had a similar situation when his wife was diagnosed with leukemia. Uh, eventually, he was running her business and his own business communicating with everyone in the family, managing all of her medical procedures and medications. And one of the things that he found really difficult in the situation was that he was working so hard, pouring out so much of himself and his wife was complaining. She didn't really seem to be appreciative at all. As he worked through the situation, he developed a lot of insights that translate remarkably well to what he's going through now in becoming a step-parent to a 14-year-old girl. What can we do as parents if our teens don't appreciate us? All of that and more is coming up on the show today. Jari, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. I read through your book, Ride or Die, Loving Through Tragedy, A Husband's Memoir. It's really an emotional book here. Not your first book, I think. So I'm curious what uh what is really personal um this one and and what inspired you to write it and and why you want to why you want to talk about this yeah sure so yeah no it's not my first rodeo as i say <laughs> i normally write business books which are not that emotional and honestly not that hard <laughs> i literally this is what i do for a living is i I'm, I'm at a growth agency for b2b companies so i write all the time and help people tell better stories so yeah this one uh is my first memoir uh, comes out september 5th 2023 on uh, it's about my late wife jane and i's uh, relationship and the challenges, struggles, joys, and sorrows of her terminal illness, which was leukemia. A lot of people ask me, like, why would you write such a book that's so personal and emotional? One of the things I just am always compelled to do is write to understand the world and to make me feel a little better. It's very cathartic. It just allows all the stuff rattling around in my head to like be put on the page. And the other thing is it's less, uh, to me, it's less scary. Like the more I talk about it, the more I write about it, the more people know about her and what happened and the beauty and sorrow and joy and all the craziness. It just makes it less scary. And I also really wanted those that are going through something like this to not feel so alone. I felt really alone, especially as a man trying to deal with this and being a caregiver, full-time caregiver and a full-time running her business. So it's just like, oh my gosh, how can I make two full-time jobs? <laughs> no, I don't know where to begin, to be honest, right? Um, which I'm sure a lot of parents feel <laughs> that way as well, especially you know, schools coming going back in. If you've got 
kids that are going into like junior high or high school. It's just, it's a, how do you, how do you get, how do you even cope? Right. Well, yeah, it was really, um, it really feels like a really honest book. And you talk a lot about kind of the, or about your sort of struggles or um, feeling like, yeah, like there's so much to do and you're constantly kind of underappreciated. It really, uh, yeah, it was, it was refreshing to see that. And it feels really, really human. That's what I tried to go for. Partly the reason why it's so such as written so well with, with all that emotion and meaning is I had a lot of really good editors. One of which was a friend of mine, uh, Leslie Watts, who is actually the editor in chief over at the Story Grid. She was my first editor, and she just helped me really refine the story and really like structurally go through the process, right? And then I had this other great and, and another editor friend, Stacy. She um, was um was really good as well but uh, the eventual publisher of the book which is called Spark Press the publisher is uh, Brooke Warner she's also an editor she's the one that really focused in on you need to put you in the book and not be so distant um and I struggled with that I fought her a little bit on that to be honest love you Brooke thank you so much for uh continuing to push me to do to be better but uh that was, I think, the pivotal turning point. People had told me, hey, put a little more of you into it, but it's really scary, as you can imagine, like really bare your soul and, and try to really capture the essence of the experience. You know? and, and I think so many men, especially, come from a male perspective, obviously, sometimes struggle to communicate what they feel or they don't feel in sort of safety, people to know what you're going through. I figured if I wrote about it, there would be no excuse not to talk about it. <laughs> so. There we go. It really is true, though. I wonder how after after kind of going through this experience and now writing a book about it, where you are with that uh, in terms of kind of talking about this as it gotten easier and what have you learned about just uh, talking about being vulnerable or talking about the hard things. Yeah. I mean, every time I talk about it, it gets a little easier and it gets a little less scary. Um, and these are topics that not a lot of people have a lot of experience with. I mean, how often does your spouse die? How often does like a kid or your, I mean, your parents, typically the stage of events, right? Is my parents die and then I die, right? And then I don't have to worry about my kids or what have you, right? I would say that uh, for me personally, every time I talk about it, it gets a little easier. I feel like it's a little bit less scary. I get a little better at understanding like what the meaning is. I, it seems to help a lot of people. I mean, I've gotten so many comments about like, oh, you're so brave for writing this. And I'm just like, brave. I, this isn't brave. What, what Jane did was brave. What I did was I just was dedicated and showed up, right? I like was in it to win it. I mean, the reason why the book's called Ride or Die, um, actually, I have to thank Brooke again for the for the title. That was not the original title. Uh, was it was really a sort of what it meant when you said your wedding vows, like in sickness and health till death do you part. This is sort of what that that's the manifestation of that, right? So it's like how do you communicate that? You can say the words, it's when you put them into practice, that's the hard part, right? When they're tested, yeah. When they're tested, right? <laughs> that testing part, the what does it really mean, the dedication, the commitment. I mean, I'm not brave. I was committed. Uh, Jane was brave. 
That was her name. Her name was Jane. Jane was brave. She faced her demise with honor and grace and with a loving kindness, especially to me. That is the reason why I could write this. It's the reason why I found love again. It's the reason why I'm not I'm still drinking alcohol. <laughs> you know, it's like I've been sober for the last five years. So it's like, I don't know. It's just a gift, right? And, and the gift is so powerful that why would I not want to share the gift? And even if it's scary, and even if people are going to give me a hard time, which no, no one really has, but even if people are going to be like, oh, I don't know how you could do that. It's like, I got a gift, a true loving gift, selfish, selfless gift. And gosh, I got to share it. I, I like, why would I not? Has that like manifested in other areas of your life as well, or being more open or sharing more? of your struggles in in other areas too? Yeah, I would say I was generally pretty open book, generally. Like I say what I mean sometimes to my detriment. <laughs> I'm opinionated. <laughs> uh, I don't like, uh, I am not a fan of bullies in general, but I'm really like people that you know, take advantage of situations and are, I'm not a fan, right? So I've always been pretty open to challenge that. And like, I, I think as men, in general, I mean, all people, but men in particular, we have to be more compassionate and show more compassion to others. Like we have certain strengths and weaknesses, weaknesses, but also some capabilities that require compassion, right? It just, we just should, that's, I think we'd be better men if we had more compassion. But yeah, I mean, going through this, like every day is a gift. Like I wake up, I'm like, I got another day. Like it could be the worst day. <laughs> At least I have another day. And honestly, it's up to me to to use that day wisely. And yeah, I have all the same problems. Like I, like I got a job, work's frustrating. There's all sorts of like, gosh, do we really have to go through this BS, right? At the end of the day, it's like, oh, well, I had another day to do something. Jane never had another day, right? She she died when she was 36 and has, has no more days. So I think it's up to me to not only realize that every day is a gift, because it is, time is precious. It's the only thing we can't print. You can print money, but you can't print time. <laughs> we don't have enough time, right? Um, and live live every day. I, it seems cliche, right? Because everyone says says that. But when you when you sort of see someone run out of days in front of you, it, it, it becomes crystal clear, like, I need to spend my time on worthwhile endeavors that hopefully improve the world. I mean, I think that's the other thing I, I realized. It's like, there's a lot of strife in the world, and there's a lot of challenges and struggles. And I think instead of complaining about it, I think we just have to do something. And I think especially as men, we should own what it is to be a man and like be, be better, like build better men, like just lead by example. Again, another reason I wrote the book, it's like a lot of times people struggle with trying to control their emotion or they come from really hard times or they like deal with hard times. It's like, look, someone like me who generally biases negative and has a halfway decent attitude can get through it. I'm pretty sure you could get through it too. You may not think you can, and it may feel bad, but again, like, I think you just really have to just, just take it a day at a time and just be thankful. Gosh, you got another day on this planet. There's not very many of those. And we so often just throw them away. Yeah. I mean, you can't, oh, not everything is <laughs> rainbows and unicorns, right? Not everything is always going to be perfect, but gosh, every day I live, I'm just like, man, I, I just got to get better at this. And then also, I think we need to have more compassionate to those that are less fortunate, those that through no no fault of their own, no circumstance of their own. I mean, look at you know, Jane's example. I mean, she got leukemia, like not her fault, like just ha literally just happened, they say, right? But still, it's like, I mean, 
But I think the other thing is it also puts life in perspective. I mean, the 15 months that she was sick, we lived a lot of life in 15 months because I think she realized I may not have much more time. So we didn't know. We didn't know if she was going to die or not. But I think that was the other thing. It's like, what's the point? What's really the point? So. Uh, what do you think that we could do as parents to raise kids who really have that that value of every day or really uh, appreciate uh, every every opportunity that they get to just to just be alive and experience this this life of how, how it seems like so easy to kind of get just you know, stressed out about high school or whatever and daily stuff and drama and everything like that as a teenager you might not necessarily have uh, something like like your experience to put everything in perspective for you, but I wonder what you think parents could do to try to sort of instill some of that. I don't know if I mentioned, but I have a fiance now, um, so found love again, which I think is also the message. Like you can be happy; you don't need to be miserable. You went through some hard stuff. Don't process it. Be respectful of it. But your spouse, your loved one, wants you to be happy. Believe me. They don't want you to sit around and be miserable. Like, and if they do, then they probably didn't love you. And I'm sorry if that seems harsh, but who, why would why would they want you to be miserable, right? Um, and part of having a fiance is uh, she has a 14 year old daughter, <laughs> so I am a, a stepfather in training. <laughs> I'm so happy I found you. We found each other because I'm going to be reading through all this stuff. You know what I mean? So it's so. She is literally starting high school this week, right? She's a freshman. So the thing I've been learning, right, along the way, right, um, is it seems to me that there is a general lack of discipline and sort of standards of behavior. And it, it, and I don't, and I'm not talking about like corporal discipline. I'm not talking about like all the all the stuff. Like I'm a Gen Xer, so in the, eight, the 70s and 80s, all the shenanigans that happened there were pretty. You know, like we got spanked. Like I'm not advocating that. But I'm not. Not, that's not what I'm talking about. What I'm what I'm talking about, and again, what I've seen is that there's no like, what is the standard in which I should aspire to? And it's an aspirational goal. Like, what are the rules of, of the game? How do I interact with people? I saw an article the other day about Gen Z and like new in the workforce and like can't figure out how to interact with people. <laughs> it's like that's that's a problem, right? So I I would say that uh, as parents and teens, you know, you're going through a lot of changes, you're going through a lot of anxiety, there's a lot of new stuff. And I think as parents, we just have to set the standard of proper behavior and you model that. Uh, I think that's the best way I can put it. My step future stepdaughter, tell her all these things. And she says, oh, it's cringe. And look, she's 14. She knows everything, obviously. right? <laughs> and and it's like, but I'm modeling what I think is the appropriate behavior in it, guiding her. And of course, talking with her mother about that and everything. But it's, I think the the message I would say going through what I went through. And, and if you are a parent that's going through this right now, which is even more horrible, like I didn't have kids at the time when Jane and I were going through this. I think it's the setting the standard, having a high standard of behavior, performance, really like I expect you to be a good person and I and I expect you to do things that are appropriate for society. And that I think is very powerful because what, what, what I learned going through this is like when you have a catastrophic event in your life, like 
this disrupted our lives pretty severely. You never rise to the occasion. You fall to your training. Like constantly, I'm stressed. I can't sleep. I'm eating too much. I'm drinking too much. I'm like not in a good position. So all of my actions would, I just regress down to what I, how I was trained. And thankfully, even though I grew up in the seventies with wooden spoons and, and licking, licking lead paint, um, there was a, my parents held a standard of which to adhere. And they taught me and, and, and they weren't the most compassionate people, to be honest, but I think nowadays we just have to, it's really important to model the right behavior. One of the reasons I wrote the book is like, if you are a married couple and you took your wedding vows and one of you gets sick, this is what I think that means. <laughs> and sickness and health, that do you part, like it's a pretty thing. So, and and I think getting back to the whole compassion thing I talked about before, I, I don't think a lot of people have, I mean, especially for teens, I mean, you're stressed out as a parent. You don't really have the perspective sometimes where you just want to get through the day. Oh gosh, we're running late. I've got my work. I mean, especially like working parents, like just, oh wow, single parent, like you guys are just rock star. How are you even going to deal with the world? Having some compassion and some actual dialogue, I think. I think the best thing that I've done is like, I'm just going to treat, like, I'm going to treat you as an adult. This is how adults act. This is the standard. And we're going to talk about it in a rational, reasonable way. And there's consequences to your poor behavior. You're making a choice. I mean, my fiance, Minerva, says this all the time. It's like, you're making the choice, not me. <laughs> it's like, choices are yours. You have this choice or that choice. Please make the wise choice. Um, and I just think that's just so powerful compared to how I grew up. Just do as I say, because I'm your dad. It's like, uh, really? That makes no sense. I think it's more of a dialogue. I mean, this is dealing with a terminal illness and you have to make life and death decisions. You tend to really want to ask the experts and really take the information in and synthesize it in a very non-biased way as best you can. It's hard to because you, you have a vested interest, but I think it's the practicality of, okay, we've got two choices. What's the best choice? Also, something that I've been thinking a lot about with respect to your book is just, yeah, how sort of um, you're having your own life and everything to deal with. Now you're also kind of concerned with all of Jane's medical care and everything that's going on with her and managing that is a whole job in its own. And said, you know, being the like correspondence with everybody and family and friends and everything is a whole thing. And then now trying to keep her business um, <laughs> above, above water and keep everything running. And you're just like have so much going on. Um, and then also at the same time, she's sick and really um needs you and feels like you're not being there for her. And uh, it really felt just how so many um, parents of teenagers, one of the most common things <laughs> that uh, people tell me is how do I, how do I get my teenager to be more appreciative? They're just so unappreciative and I just do so much, but it really struck me that it, it may, it's not necessarily just a teenager thing. It's like this, your, your wife is in this situation where she's really needs support from you too. And those same feelings are are happening for you in this book. And it really just got me thinking about that a lot because it's just such a common sentiment from parents. And I wonder just kind of, yeah, how you kind of ended up de dealing with that or co coping with that and how you think that translates. Yeah. Um, and that's actually a really astute question because it's the caregiver relationship between 
who you're caring for and you as the caregiver. And when that dynamic switched between Jane and I, like she was no longer my wife. I mean, she was, but yeah, that there's a passage that really stuck with me where you were talking about how kind of before this, we were this like power couple kind of conquering the world together. And then after this diagnosis came through, now it's sort of flipped and now you're taking care of her. And yeah, everything is kind of um, turned on its head a little bit. I think the reason why well, what I've learned about it is as the caregiver, I have all the power and she was basically powerless. So that was super annoying <laughs> for her being a person that is um, very uh, type A person. So I think it's the caregiver has, has the power in the relationship and the person that's being cared for. The dynamic is more of frustration that I don't have autonomy. There's frustration that I can't make my own choices. There's frustration that why that they don't know what they don't know. Some of it is manifest as, oh, I know everything. You're like, you don't know anything, right? But it's because they have lack control. I, th I think, I think it's the lack of control from the person being cared for. And yeah, I think you're right. And it's kind of one, one way to sort of, I guess, I don't know, feel like you have a little bit of control or something. Yeah. A little, yeah, I mean, the reaction is I need control of my own life and I have no control. I think the best way th this was put to me one day was I'm, I'm walking back into her, um, her hospital room. She's in chemo. She's been in it for like four weeks. I mean, it's just miserable chemo. Like, like it's whole other level of hell. It's like torture, but you have to do it right. Cause, or you die. Like, so you have a best bad choice. And I remember walking in and she just lit into me about you get to go outside you get to drink coffee, you get to do this and do that. And I'm like, I'm working to like, she had no appreciation for it. But then as I realized, oh, that's what she wanted. She wanted the control. She wanted to be able to leave the room and she couldn't. So she was just taking it out on me. You have the control and I don't. And I think I'm not a psychologist or anything, but I think the, the teen parent dynamic is I have no control or I have a little control. I'm starting to realize that there's a world out there and I need to sort of like expand my horizons and I'm bumping up against this control thing. Yeah, like exactly. Like, ah. and, and, and that dynamic is very powerful. It's all a question of as the caregiver or as the parent, like how do I handle this who's developing into a, an adult, giving them the autonomy and the ability to make some decisions. It's going to give them a sense of their own autonomy. Like generally people want to be good at stuff. Like they want to be like proud of what they've done. But it, when it's so constrained, they're like, I don't know, how am I going to be my true authentic self other than just like, like, and you see this like adolescent boys as opposed to adolescent girls, right? Adolescent boys generally like can't stop moving. Like they're just right. fidgety. And, and why is that? Everyone's like, well, there's just boys. We boys like, well, boys at that point have, have a, a performance enhancing drug called testosterone which is literally banned from Olympic events because it's a performance enhancing drug. So you've got all these kids, like you've got these young boys who've never felt this performance enhancing drug called testosterone. Again, it's banned. You cannot juice up on it. And all of a sudden they're like, I don't know what to do with myself. <laughs> right. I mean, you, you, you were a young, young boy, even as a man, it's just like, it's just like, this is a, this is a power that you have to, harness. You literally have to learn how to control it. You're just bouncing off. I don't know what this is, right? We're here with Jari Bolander talking about how to handle an ungrateful teenager. And we're not done yet. Here's a look at what's coming up in the second half of the show. 
is like a mutual respect. Like I understand the situation is different than you may have liked it. I understand that I'm not your biological father. I understand that uh, there could be conflicts in that, but look, I'm I'm going to be here. We can either deal with that or we can fight about it. I think I just got to earn it every day. It's on me. I mean, just imagine if you're in a relationship and dominant, right? Like you have no say, you must feel really bad. Well, your kids probably feel the same way. Put in enough of the guardrails so that she can bounce off of them and kind of find her own way because part of it is like, I can't just tell her. I mean, I can, I could be like, look, this is the world. But sometimes you have to experience that in a sort of a safe way. So put the guardrails up and have her just bounce around on the guardrails. I want to be the model of what a good man is. Yeah. Social worker came into Jane's hospital room when she was having chemo and she literally knocked on the door when we were in mid fight about her maybe dying. And I'm like, I don't want to hear it. Don't want to hear it. It's bullshit. Knock a nope. Nope. Sorry. Just don't want stop being so negative. And she's like, you got to make sure that you understand this. You have to have reality. And we're just, I mean, we we're screaming at each other. Right. And this social worker came in and for an hour and a half, she just walked us through and she literally made us come to the conclusion that it is okay that Jane is talking about her demise. Like she may die because she loves you so much. She wants you to be happy. And it's okay for Jari to be upset about that because he loves you so much. He doesn't want you to die. When you are in the mix and you're emotional and you cannot convey your feelings in a really like clear, concise way, you just struggle. You scream, you cry, because it's hard to say to someone, I don't want you to die. And to the person dying, it's hard for them to say, well, if I die, I actually want you to be happy. Want to hear the full episode? Head over to talkingtoteens.com slash register for a free trial of our premium podcast. You get exclusive access to loads of great content with no obligation. And your membership supports the work we do here at Talking to Teens. Get started today with a free trial over at talkingtoteens.com slash register. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.